0: Well good evening everyone. I want you to look again at 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and look at those opening words as Timothy begins this chapter or excuse me as Paul begins this chapter and he's continuing his admonishment and encouragement of his young disciple Timothy. Notice how he begins this section. He says this know also that in the last days perilous times will come. It's interesting to me that Paul opens up his, quote, encouragement to Timothy uh, here in this chapter with those words, with not beating around the bush, so to speak, but actually getting straight to the heart of the matter that, yes, perilous times are ahead. As I've reflected on this series through the pastoral epistles, next week we should, Lord willing, be closing out that series. I've been thinking about this relationship between Paul and Timothy and just how wonderful and that it is that we get these insights from the Apostle Paul and the young preacher Timothy. I think it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the New Testament. I also think it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the entire Bible. Just looking at how Paul devoted and invested himself into Timothy and how likewise Timothy did the same to Paul. They had a genuine love and bond for each other, like we've mentioned several times, like a father and a son. Paul cared for this young preacher deeply. And you can see it. You can see it throughout his writing. And it all comes back to one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, the words that we've been using throughout this series. The sound doctrine of King Jesus. That's what has solidified and steadied and fastened their relationship with each other. And such is why it forms the bulk of these letters to Timothy. Is that Paul is wanting Timothy to see. As Paul is sort of uh, uh, going on moving into a new phase of his life. Actually he would be near the end of his life. He wants Timothy to understand the seriousness of the, of the mission of preaching sound doctrine. This wasn't a light matter. This wasn't a leisurely mission, so to speak, that he was getting involved in. It was something that was serious. It was something that would require his total and complete dedication and devotion. And such is why he is trying to get his attention here. This, no, in the last days, perilous times will come. He presses in, so to speak. He leans into the hardships and the heartaches that awaits Timothy. He's not subtle about what is coming in the days ahead. He's not uh, sort of subtle about Timothy's ministerial future. Perilous times. Uh, Troubling times. Struggle. That is what is in your future, Timothy. Your future, Timothy, as the pastor of this church, is going to be difficult. (laughs) How about that for a quote-unquote pep talk? Going into the ministry, hey, perilous times are coming. But I think the sharpness of those words, I think, serves to give Timothy and us, I think, both humility about the future, but also hope for the future. And it's that I want us to look at in three quick lessons as we see throughout this chapter, chapter 3. As Paul is warning Timothy about these perilous last days. Notice firstly in verses 2 through 9, we have a lesson about deception. Notice what happens. This no, Paul writes also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. He warns here very clearly, very openly, that in these last days that are going to be perilous, Timothy, you are going to face a lot of deception. A lot of deception that's going to come from guys that are claiming to be true and good and righteous and holy, but actually they are nothing more than blasphemous traitors. Traitors that have committed treason against the sound doctrine of God, such as how Paul describes them here in these verses. If you read the verses again, just scan them. It doesn't sound like anything you would want to be described by. <laughs> I don't think Paul misses anything here when he's talking and trying to get into your minds what these, what these deceitful teachers are like. But the one thing that jumps out to me, the summation of their character as you read these verses in verses 2-5 through five is one thing. They are narcissistic to the core. They are lovers of their own selves, he says in verse 2. And actually I think all the rest of these descriptors come out are, and are bred out of that one description. That they love themselves more than anyone else. Such as why they are okay with being covetous and boasting in themselves and being proud. And they are unthankful and unholy and all the like. They are narcissistic. They are self-loving. They are conceited. Concerned only with their own regard. concerned only with their own interests. And these sorts of teachers, Timothy, Paul is saying, these are the ones that you have to stay away from. Well, what's fascinating to me is that these deceitful teachers, they do know something of the truth. Did you see that in verse 5? He says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, he says. A form of godliness, the sliver of the truth they might have, but they deny the true power of it. They profess Jesus with their lips, but their lives, as he says in verse 4, they love pleasure more than God. Even though they have a shred of this godliness, of this truth that comes with the gospel, they deny its true power. They castrate the power of the truth by making it all about them. They aren't true teachers of the word. They actually balk at true religion. They seek only praise and the applause of men by fabricating all of these veneers of goodness. They have a form of godliness, but they don't have the crux of it. These teachers, Timothy, these are the ones you have to watch out for. They don't know what true religion is. They don't know what the the sound doctrine actually entails, the sound doctrine of God. They are false teachers, Timothy. Watch out for them. They have a guise of truth, like they've put on sheep's clothing, but really they are just wolves. They don't really care for the truth. They are only concerned with what the truth can do for them, what the truth can get them. And this is the overriding emphasis of all of what Paul writes here. They are concerned only with themselves. And Timothy, turn away from them. Look at verse 5 again where he says, from such turn away. Lose all involvement. Lose all associations with them. They are deceptive. They are treacherous. They are betrayers of the truth of the gospel. And notice that it isn't just enough that they get the applause of men. Look at what they actually are seeking to do. Look at verse 6. Look at where Paul writes, For this sort, of these sorts of teachers and deceivers, are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women. That's the King James. I'll explain it in a minute. (laughs) Laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, the King James is sometimes funny. It translates to silly women here, which that's I'm not saying that the King James is saying that. But what he's talking about? He's talking about that these deceivers, that these deceitful teachers, who go around looking to get the applause and the acclaim of men, what they do is they seek out the vulnerable, the gullible. They go to houses and they creep into them, and they first lead captive uh, those that might be suggestive of easy targets. And they entrap them with their spirituality, with their showmanship, so to speak. And before long, as he says, they creep into these houses and they have influence over the whole house. With their false words. And it's fascinating. Notice the connection he makes. Look at verse 8. He connects these deceitful teachers with two men from the times of Moses. Look at what he says. Now Janus and Jambres withstood Moses... So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. It's interesting, he pulls out these names, seemingly out of nowhere, Janus and Jambres. And he connects them with those magicians, so to speak, who withstood Moses all the way back when Moses was trying to get the people of Israel out of Egypt. If you search though the accounts of the Exodus, you won't find these names because actually it's more likely that these names Janus and Jamrus were really just nicknames that had been applied to these guys that had been passed down through years of folklore and tradition, so to speak. They mean respectively the rebel and the opponent. Such is why you can see is that why they apply very well to not only the ones who withstood Moses, but also these that are withstanding the truth. They are rebellious in opposing the truth that Paul is seeking to instill in Timothy. And he says there in verse eight, just like those two, these two that have been that we know through tradition, they are of corrupt minds. And he says they are reprobate concerning the faith. They are worthless. For the faith. They are worthless. And just like Janus and Jambres were embarrassed by their folly, Paul says, so will these deceitful teachers be embarrassed and exposed. Let me read you one of those passages. If you don't remember what I'm talking about. If you go to Exodus chapter 9 verse 11, you'll remember the scene. Exodus chapter 9, look at verse 11. Well, I'll read up a little bit more. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, take to, take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in the land of Egypt and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man. And upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven. And it became a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Here is one of the culminating moments in which these magicians are put to, as Paul writes it, an open folly. They're openly disgraced and shamed before all of those that were in this assembly, but mostly before God himself. And such is what he applies to these men here, back in our text in Second Timothy three, that all these swindlers of the truth, these seducers, these deceivers, these men who go about and they are they are committing treason against the truth of sound doctrine, in the end they will be put to an open shame. In the end, Timothy, you can be confident in this that the truth will win out. The truth will prevail. In the end, God will leave these self loving, deceiving teachers, he will leave them in the dust. Because guess what? God's truth always overrules man's deception. You can bank on it, Timothy Paul seems to say. You can bank on this that the truth that you have in you, the truth that you are preaching, it overrules any of man's deceiving schemes. The truth will always prevail. A lesson about deception. Notice next in verse 10. A lesson about danger. Look what he says. But thou, Paul writes, hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Secondly, I think we see here a lesson about danger, because here he not only links that this idea that uh, growing in these perilous last days would be uh, a growing deception, but dangers from within and from without would multiply in these days. And here he, as he says, but thou hast fully known. He's reminding Timothy, you know, you know the things that I have already endured. You know the things, you, you have been aware, you've witnessed of them, or you have been told all of those things that I endured at Iconium, he says, in Antioch and Lystra. You know and understand what we have endured for the sake of the gospel. There's a verse there in Acts 16 or 17 where it talks about uh, they, go to, um, they go to the city and they come there and the, Timothy is with them. And they're accused of turning the world upside down, it says. And actually, if you look further, uh, Timothy is there and they are forced to flee because of a great uh, mob that comes upon them as they are preaching there in that city. And they are forced to flee. Such is the afflictions and the persecutions that Timothy was witness to. That Timothy saw with his own eyes. He saw the things that came upon the life of a minister. You think about that in Timothy's life as Paul is here reminding him in 2 Timothy 3. These things you know, Timothy. You remember, you know these things that I endured. It's interesting to me that all of the formative years of Timothy's life in the ministry were spent watching his mentor constantly persecuted and beaten and mistreated for the same thing that Timothy would be soon charged with preaching. Think about that in Timothy's life. That the one he is supposedly ascribing to model his life after, this Apostle Paul. He sees him constantly being brought to the edge of his life. And here, actually I wrote these verses down. If you go to Acts chapter 13, you can read the verses of what Paul suffered at Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. Notice what, what Luke says here as he's recording these events. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. How about that? But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold, and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Wouldn't it be great if Luke's account ended there? You can see this incredible event. Paul and Barnabas are preaching here. They preach the word of the Lord. And they have a rousing revival of these Gentiles. But not watch what happens. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Ghost. They were moved away. They were expelled out of that city forcibly. But notice as Paul, back in our text, he mentions Iconium. Well, look at the next two verses. Acts 14, verse 1. And it came to pass at Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. That would be great if it ended there. But watch. Again, those rowdy, unbelieving Jews, he says, stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. And they are forced to leave there. Look at Acts chapter Fourteen, verse five, and when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were ware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of the Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. You can see all the movements of the gospel as Paul and Barnabas here are sold out with preaching with their lives. And each time there are those who resist it. And I love what happens. Look at verse nineteen. He, this is chapter fourteen, verse nineteen. Luke records, and there came, there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Here again, here Paul and Barnabas are in Derby, and there's some certain Jews coming over across from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul. Drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. For the sake of the gospel. I take you through that because I want you to know that this is exactly some of the things that Paul is getting Timothy to be reminded of. Remember those times when I was pushed out, when I was pushed out of this city and pushed out of the next one? When the time when I was left for dead after being stoned? That might sit heavy on Timothy's mind. I think all of those things that he witnessed stuck with him. The things that he witnessed on during his missionary days with Paul stuck with him. The constant uh, beatings, the constant persecutions for the sake of this sound doctrine that now Paul is trying to instill in Timothy to preach. Such is why I think these two letters, First and Second Timothy, are just full and brimming with sort of this rhetoric that says, "Stay the course." Be faithful, don't swerve, don't delay in preaching this truth. And here he says in verse 11, because he takes them, he he says, remember all these things. And then at the end of verse 11, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Don't worry, Timothy. Don't worry, because out of every single danger, God delivered me out of the hands of those who were trying to mistreat me. Don't worry, because out of every single instance of persecution, the Lord's hand sustained me, supported me, made a way of escape. Don't worry, Timothy. The Lord delivered me out of all the hands of the enemy. Such is why Timothy could be resolved and strengthened. In the knowledge that God's truth does not dissipate in danger. In fact, this is what Paul is trying to get Timothy to see. Notice in verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Timothy, this is normative of the Christian life. Those who come up against you. Those deceitful teachers who will try and bring you down. Who will try and deceive others in your church. Who will try and ruin your reputation in your ministry. Timothy, this is normal for those who are against the truth. Naturally, because they are for the truth of the world, which stands opposite of the truth of the gospel. Persecution will come for those who follow Jesus. That's not a very intriguing or encouraging thought, perhaps, except that we have the promise such that Timothy does too. The Lord delivered me out of them all. Such is our promise. Yes, persecution might come and will come perhaps. Suffering will be there perhaps. It might be in your future even now, or perhaps later, or perhaps it was when you're coming out of it. The Lord delivers. He delivers the sufferers. He delivers those who are desperate. If you go back really quickly, look at these two verses in Acts chapter 14. Because remember those events where he was left for dead? Listen to his words. Listen to Paul's words right after that moment. Acts chapter 14, look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They go back to the very cities that they had been expelled from. And it says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. They go back to the places where they were persecuted. The places where they experienced grave and serious danger. And they say, hey, guess what? This is what it means to be a disciple. It's trusting in God's truth. Yes, even in dangerous times. Timothy, this is your charge. Your charge is to believe in the fact that God's truth always abides. Yes, even in dangerous times. Even in times where it doesn't feel like God has, uh, has his hand in it. When it feels like God is not there. When it feels like he is looking the other way. You can know, Timothy, Paul seems to say. And you can know, you who are here tonight... That the Lord delivers you out of all danger. He watches over you, He cares for you. In Timothy and you tonight, you can be confident in that fact. He says as much in verse 13 in an opposite way. He says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. The point of that verse, I think, is to say this. That those who have given up themselves to the deceitful uh, lives of the world, they have already sealed their fate. They've already sealed their lives with a fate that, as he says, waxes worse and worse. But you, Timothy, you who believe in the sound doctrine, you have a foundation, a seal that is firmly fixed in God himself. That the Lord delivers all those who are in danger. And notice he closes with another lesson. A lesson about deception and danger. And verse 14 through the end of the chapter I think we have the third lesson. Which is a lesson about deliverance. Because yes, even these deceitful teachers will wax worse and worse. Notice what he charges Timothy with. But continue thou. In the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In contrast to those who are waxing worse and worse in their own deception, digging their own graves, so to speak, Timothy is charged with continuing in the things that are actually directly opposite of those deceitful teachers. Continue in the things that thou hast learned and been assured of, he says. Continue. He says, remain. Abide. Wait. Stand in your your persistence for the truth. Remain in this defense of the truth of the gospel, notwithstanding the opposition that comes about. And why? Why could Timothy be confident in this? Well, because one, in verses 14 and 15, this truth filled his upbringing. You remember at the beginning of this letter in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, he reminds Timothy of how he was brought up by his mother and grandmother who had a a, a rousing faith. And he says here that from a child you knew the holy scriptures. These things aren't unfamiliar with you, Timothy. They aren't unfamiliar to you. You have known them for your whole life, basically. You already have in your hand, essentially Paul is saying, you already have in your hand the greatest weapon against the dangers and deceptions of the world. And that weapon is the word of God. Timothy, you are already equipped. You are already ready to face what is going to come your way. Because you have these holy scriptures in your hands. And you have them in your head, in your heart. And notice I love that the fact that Paul, he makes this incredible connection that these holy scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Paul's holy scriptures. The Old Testament is riddled with the message of salvation. Think about the scriptures that Timothy had in his hand. Not yet a complete canon of the holy scriptures that we have in front of us here. And he was already being confirmed in the fact that you can know that not only are these things true, but all the things that you have been told about this guy named Jesus, they are absolutely true. And it's promised and predicted in the scriptures that you have known from a little boy. And you can know it because of the next reason he gives. Because in the verses 16 and 17 that these truths are formed and fashioned by God himself. If you grew up or if you went to Bible school, no doubt, you probably memorized these two verses for a quiz one day. I remember trying to cram these in for a quiz five minutes before the quiz because that's how I rolled sometimes. I got an A plus on it though because I can do that. Um, I'm not saying that you should do that. Don't take that as what you should do. Take it as what you should not do. But I did it. I'm just telling you what happened. Um, But I remember memorizing these verses and not really thinking about the weight of them. And I think for uh, us, we can also get lost in just the weight of them theologically and how we can parse out the words. That all scripture is breathed out by God, as it should say. And I think that's very true. But I think what most jumps out to me as I'm reading this now is just what this would do for Timothy's heart and Timothy's mind. Paul, I don't think, is necessarily trying to give him a sort of systematic theology of how to think about the scriptures. He's actually trying to encourage him. Hey, guess what, Timothy? These things that you're preaching, they are absolutely 100% true. Why? Because God inspired them. God breathed them out. This message that you're preaching about salvation by grace through faith, it's not a man-made message that you're peddling. You're preaching God's message. It's not malleable according to the whims and fancies of the world. It's absolutely fixed in the fact that God is unchangeable. He's immutable. He does not change in this message of salvation. Salvation, yes, as he even wrote for the chief of sinners. It doesn't change, Timothy. You can be confident in this. They're profitable for every single phase of your life as a preacher. For every single moment. As your life in your life as a minister, as a disciple of the word, you can be confident in the fact that this message is God's message. He came up with it. He wrote it. He's the author and the finisher of it. It's absolutely something Timothy that you can bank your life on. Such I think is what such I think would sober Timothy for these perilous times that were coming but also strengthen him. He can be confident that he doesn't have to waver, regardless of what the world might say about what he's preaching. He can be confident in this, that what he is preaching is breathed out by God. These are God's words, not yours, Timothy. These are God's truths, not yours. He is the author and the finisher of all of it. Therefore, you can rely on it every single moment, every single day. Despite all of the deception and the dangers that were all around him, this word never changes. It doesn't alter. It doesn't waver in its truth. What it says about you is always the same. That you are a guilty, filthy sinner. But guess what? What it says about Jesus is always the same. That he always saves the chief of sinners. And therefore, Timothy, you can be confident and bold in that message. And such should we be. We bank our lives, not on something that we've come up with, but on something that God has breathed out. That God inspired holy men of scriptures to write these words. That God's spirit himself wrote them. We didn't come up with the message of grace. Man would never come up with the message of grace in 10 billion years. The idea that Jesus would die and take our place as our substitute, as our vicarious atonement on that cross for us, that's something that only God would come up with. And guess what he did? And he wrote it in his word, and now we are made to be the incredible partakers of that truth. A truth which God formed and fashioned before the world began. What I also find is something that we've, been seeing and learning in the adult Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. If you didn't know, for the past several weeks we've been going through this series called The Indestructible Book. Which has traced the history of the written word all the way from when Moses received the words of God to how we got perhaps the King James or whatever translation of the Bible you have in front of you. What led to that being in your hands? Because if you hold a physical Bible in your hands, or if you have it on your iPhone or your phone, even that is a miracle too. We've been looking at the history of what happened throughout all of the ages and epochs of time. And what I've been so fascinated by is what I shared a couple weeks ago is just the fact that people were willing to go to the stake and be burned for one page of this Bible. And in fact, one of the stories a couple of weeks ago in the class reiterated the fact that some were even willing to be burned just for having a written copy of the Lord's Prayer in their own language. That to me doesn't happen because they believe in some man made doctrine, it happens because they believe that these are the very words of God. And that these words of God are what they are powerful and able to make wise people to the salvation by grace through faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's no other way that women and men like you and me would be so willing to go and give up their lives for something other than the fact that it is something that is completely otherworldly. The Bible that you have in front of you is something that is a miracle of divine grace. And guess what? It tenders divine grace to you. Through the person and work of Jesus. And it's a message that is not our own. It's a message that is God's. God's truth is what brings about man's deliverance. It's what sustains you in all of the danger. And it's what makes you stable in all of the deception. You want something to rely on? You want something to bank on? Bank on God's truth. It's the only thing that you have in days that are perilous. Let us pray.